This is Dr. Paul Sachs. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases. And today I'm really delighted to be joined by Dr. Raj Punjabi. He's the CEO and founder of Last Mile Health, and he's also an associate physician at Harvard Medical School and at Brigham Women's Hospital. And I first heard of his work through an email I received from Meredith Mazada, who's the fine medical editor of these podcasts. And she had heard about a TED Prize that he'd won for his work in bringing healthcare to people who live in the most remote areas and sometimes most impoverished areas of the world. And she said to me, she said, you have to interview him. And so I said, okay, I'll try to reach out and do so. So Raj, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Paul. It's an honor to be here. So can you start us off by telling us a little bit about your background and how it influenced your desire to work in global health? I grew up in West Africa in Liberia. My parents are of Indian origin and had migrated there in the 1970s. And the real privilege of growing up in this beautiful country, which was also experiencing a significant amount of political and economic upheaval. And in 1990, when I was nine years old, Liberia erupted into a civil war and sent my family and hundreds of thousands of others fleeing. So I ended up in North Carolina eventually in a community called High Point and had wanted to go back to serve the people we'd left behind. I was in medical school and even just a few years prior had started to get interested in the challenges of rural health care. I had worked in Alaska where that state had put together a very impressive primary health care delivery system using what they called community health aides. These are community members who may be 10th to 12th grade educated who are trained for a matter of 16 to 32 weeks to provide a range of clinical primary health care services in the Alaskan tundra where it was impossible to build roads and where villages were isolated and could be hundreds of miles from the nearest clinic or hospital through an effort to tackle infectious diseases. In the 1950s, they had trained these so-called chemotherapy aids, people from the villages, to address a tuberculosis epidemic. At that time, a doctor by the name of Dr. George Comstock, familiar to those in the tuberculosis field, was testing whether isoniazid prophylaxis was an effective therapy and used these chemotherapy aids to, in fact, prove that it was. That work on tuberculosis later led to primary health care work on vaccinations, on prenatal care. I had been fortunate to work with them in 2001 and had become very inspired by the idea of community-based health care. Of course, I later came to know about the work of Partners in Health in Haiti. And when I went back, when I was 24 in 2005 to my home country, what I found was just utter destruction, uh, Mm. similar challenges in rural areas. That's what got me inspired to work and try to contribute. We had just 51 doctors left to serve a country of 4 million people. Mm. It would be the equivalent of, say, Boston having eight or 10 physicians or San Francisco having about as many. And so you can imagine some of the same challenges of rural healthcare delivery with such doctor shortages was a big challenge. That's just remarkable. I mean, you think about the kind of healthcare you're talking about, it's the polar opposite of these sort of quaternary 
center medical areas that we have in Boston and San Francisco. It's really remarkable. So you had this idea. How did you start the program? I mean, a lot of people want to help out, but not very many people can actually get something like this started. Well, I was a medical student at the time, and it was actually a rural HIV epidemic that had in many ways forced us to respond. I had been assigned by the Ministry of Health in Liberia to work at a district hospital in the southeastern portion of the country where they had just introduced rapid testing for HIV disease. And much to many people's surprise, we were seeing dozens of patients with advanced stages of HIV come in who had received testing to confirm their disease, but did not have access to treatment. And with that doctor shortage, at that time in 2007, the ministry's policy was that HIV medicines could only be prescribed by physicians. We then were invited to work with them to adapt that, in fact, train non-physician clinicians, physician assistants in that case, as well as community health workers to try to expand access to rural HIV treatment. So we started the first rural HIV treatment with the government in 2007. And a few months later, we had about 60 patients with HIV disease, many of whom needed strong social and community-based support. And at that stage, we launched what ended up becoming called Last Mile Health Mm -hmm. with about $5,000 from our wedding. Uh, (laughs) My wife and I were getting married around the time. And again, that, that just goes to show there really wasn't a plan, except uh, we were fortunate to receive some some support to start, and we hired a first batch of community health workers to care for these patients, and later, since then, have expanded our work. So you didn't register at Bloomingdale's or Creighton Barrow for your, <laughs> when you got married. So once you got started, you must run up to challenges all the time. This is not easy work. What are some of the top ones? I think that challenges of poverty and inequality are particularly pronounced for patients who live in, we say, most remote communities. These are primarily hunting communities and may have up to a couple hundred people, but the distances then they have walked to get to the nearest township are quite far. It turns out the average time is around four to eight hours, depending on which district you are in, to get to a clinic. I say walk because often in these forested communities is the only way to get there. These are places where forest is dense, roads are sparse, and health workers are sparse. So that then introduces, as you can imagine as a clinician, significant delays in diagnosing disease and then also starting treatment and then continuing treatment. So those are, I would say, at a clinical level, the major challenges. Of course, we've had to invest at Last Mile Health, along with our partners at the Ministry of Health, tremendously in a decentralized healthcare model that involves nurses and community health workers. Yeah, I can only imagine. What sort of diagnostic tests do you have available? Obviously, there are some rapid diagnostic tests. They must have transformed their ability to do this. I think they have, and increasingly so. Without the advent of rapid diagnostic tests for HIV, for instance, we would not have been able to understand the true burden of HIV disease in that rural setting. And arguably, it's still not well understood. We have also used malaria rapid diagnostics tests. Mm -hmm. There's a big burden of falciparum malaria which is the major killer of children under five in that region. And being able to train community health workers to use this 15-minute test that's almost as simple as a pregnancy test over the counter Mm -hmm. has allowed us to make malaria testing available right at the home level, 
going door to door. Are they expensive tests? They're not. At this point, they're under a dollar per use. That's actually made it quite scalable. At this point, the Liberian government, in partnership with Last Mile Health and Partners in Health and a number of others, has put together a national program of community health workers. And there are almost 3,000 of these workers across the country serving hundreds of thousands of people who are all in remote rural communities. They are using rapid tests. Imagine being able to now truly understand the burden of disease and then being able to treat it. That's had a significant impact. Mm. What do you think motivates your community health workers to join your program? You would think one component is career progression and the chance to earn an income Mm -hmm. and the chance to be recognized by your community and have a job. Certainly, those are parts of what I call the extrinsic motivation for these workers. What I've learned more recently is that there's an intrinsic motivation that's not unfamiliar to any of us that are physicians, which Mm -hmm. is simply the desire to learn. Mm -hmm. I spent time recently with a community health worker named A.B., who was caring for a patient with severe acute malnutrition. And after caring for this patient over the course of several months, which included an in-hospital stay and transport on a four-hour journey on a canoe and follow-up care with ready-to-use therapeutic food, this patient improved. A.B. with himself been in the eighth grade when he had dropped out and then had gone his entire life without a job, his first job being a community health worker, asked A.B. what motivated him. And he said to me, that it was the idea that his brain was getting fresh. We use fresh as a word in Liberia to say enlightened or advanced. I think that is a very powerful motivator for Mm. these workers. Mm. And it's something we're continuing ourselves to learn more about. Any other successes you want to share with us, either individual cases or diseases that you feel like you've gotten pretty good at dealing with? When we started working in one of Liberia's most remote districts named Konobo District, this is an area that's 17 hours from the capital, takes an average of about six hours to get to the single clinic in the district. We found at that time that if you were a child with a fever, a febrile illness, or symptoms of acute respiratory infection, the chance that your parent would be able to take you to get care was about 10 to 20%. We were able to, with a team of nurses based in clinics who then coached teams of tens of community health workers within a four-year period to increase that rate of access to treatment up to about 50 to 60% in that setting. And 75% of the care there was delivered by community health workers. And of course, were the severe cases who then were referred up to the clinics. That kind of data was very important for ourselves and the Ministry of Health to demonstrate an impact turned out to have happened during the course of the Ebola epidemic, which made the data stronger. Then later, the Ministry of Health, along with a number of other partners, used that data and other good examples across the country to design a national program following the Ebola epidemic to provide care for children with those conditions, but also prenatal care and follow-up care for patients with mm-hmm. HIV and TB. Uh, that kind of progress makes us feel very motivated. Uh, of course, we're still not even close to addressing the real burden of disease in these communities. If you think about the years of life saved when you take a childhood diarrheal illness or malaria and you're able to cure that, it's huge. Yeah. Very big impact, even if the numbers of people you're treating are relatively small. Uh, Your last point there is a very important one. In public health and in clinical medicine, we have built our systems around volume of care. And the volume is highest where the density of the population is highest. 
So what's happened in places like Alaska and in Liberia, where the density of population is extremely low for a particular district, our models of care delivery, whether it be primary care and infectious disease, really have run up into problems and challenges. And the problem isn't just unique to Liberia or Alaska. It turns out some 400 million to a billion people live in the world's most isolated communities without really any access to even basic health care. Mm. And we think part of the challenge is that at a policymaking level and at a program planning level, our models of care have been driven by high volume and our challenges to deliver care to places where there may be low volume of patients, but still high levels of burden of disease haven't really matched yet. And that's something we're very eager to work on with others. Yes. Focus on years of life saved per patient treated. That's a good way of looking at it. So over the years, what has surprised you most about doing this sort of work? Is there anything in particular you want to highlight? Well, here's what I'm not surprised about. I'll say this first, (laughs) is that this is really very much a team sport. And I think that has always felt the case from the beginning, whether it's teams of doctors working with non-physician clinicians, nurses, and physician assistants, for instance, and community health workers with communities themselves. That all is critical, working with partners, whether it be other nonprofit organizations like our friends at Partners in Health or at the Ministry of Health. All of that is critical. I think what's been surprising is how much our cynicism can prevent us from imagining a higher level of care. And and our mutual friend, Dr. Paul Farmer, has been a great visionary in showing how you could bring even the highest quality of care to the poorest populations in the world, extending that all the way to the last mile to even the most remote, smallest communities is another great challenge. And that cynicism can creep in even in day-to-day work. And what I found is being proximal to suffering, being proximal to caring for patients Mm. has been one of the antidotes to that cynicism. That's a good point. So this audience, the people who listen to this are predominantly ID doctors, although we do have other listeners. Is there something that you think we'd find particularly interesting that we haven't heard yet? I've been grateful in my own career as I'm an internist trained in primary care. I have, I think at almost every important insight I have gained, uh, infectious disease doctors seem to be quite involved. And I think that's because the burden has still not been alleviated, right? There is certainly, I would say, already existing non-communicable disease burden, whether it's hypertension or heart failure or diabetes in these settings. And I think the role of infectious disease prevention, treatment, and care has been critical and will continue to be so because there's still an unmet burden of infectious diseases. But what I'm also finding in the work, and I think this is very relevant for infectious disease doctors, is that the systems that are built, say for HIV disease care delivery, can be leveraged to strengthen care delivery writ large. And I think we're only starting to understand that. The more we can put behind better treatment protocols, better diagnostic protocols, especially involving task shifting, the idea of taking tasks that may be done by a specialist and allowing a generalist to do it or by a generalist asking a nurse to do it or a community health worker to do it. I think the more we can apply our intellectual rigor in infectious disease towards that, take the instance of a rapid diagnostic test we discussed with malaria earlier, I think the more our ability to serve that unmet infectious disease burden and other forms of disease will be served. I, I totally agree. And for a, a more chronic infection, 
think about hepatitis C, which is so treatable now, yeah. and the data show yeah. that it does not need to be done by specialists by any stretch of the imagination. So, Raj, it's been terrific. I want to give you a chance to say some final words before we finish up. I am grateful for the work that so many infectious disease doctors are doing. My, my sincere hope is that as we look at the progress we're making in global health, that we continue to take pride in the fact that we're reaching the urban and the densely rural populations, and that we also take the same energy and effort and apply them to that last mile, the last 20% yeah. that's reached. I think if we can keep that justice or equity imperative at the center, I think we will all be motivated and inspired to continue pushing in the way that we already have. That's great. One last question. Where's the weather better, Alaska or Liberia? <laughs> Depends what time of the year. I bet it does. Okay, Raj. Well, that that's terrific. So once again, I've been talking with Dr. Raj Punjabi. He is the founder and CEO of Last Mile Health, and he's been sharing with us his experiences in bringing healthcare to people in the most remote parts of the world. Thanks very much, Raj. Thank you, Paul. 